I was just tricking Dave to read it because he could pronounce the Hebrew better than me. <laughs> Let's pray together again. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's through the foolishness of preaching that you save and sanctify. And then it's as we pray to you that the real power of heaven comes down. And so we come to you humbly, acknowledging our complete need for you to break through, for your grace to be at work, for your Holy Spirit to illuminate both the speaker and the hearers, that, Lord, we would be among those who are truly changed, because through your Spirit's work, we hear it, we believe it, we take it to heart, and we apply it. But, Lord, we know that's in your hands. So this morning, bless the preaching and the hearing of your word to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We began to see last Sunday, some of us anyway, that although Joseph takes up the most space here in chapters 37 to 50, the ending of Genesis, it's not merely the story of Joseph. We saw last week, I don't have time to give the whole uh, message last week. I will have it online, so feel free to um, listen to it. We see that God is the hero of the story. And Joseph's just the human instrument through whom God has decided to deliver his people. Chapter, chapters 37 to 50 begin with the heading, This is the Generations of Jacob. Notice that, not Joseph. It's all about the unfolding of God's covenant promises to who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we need to get that right as we look at this text. Now that's why, and this is the interesting thing, in the very next chapter, after chapter 37, we have chapter 38, where the author just leaves us hanging. Right? He just gets us really involved, emotionally involved in the story of Joseph. He's sold by his brothers. He lands in Egypt. And then all of a sudden, abruptly, we're talking about Judah. So what we have to see here is this is not just an abrupt interruption to the real story, but it's actually an important part of the continuing story of redemption. So the real question we got to ask ourselves as you look at the text is why Judah? Why all of a sudden do we leave Joseph's story and we go to Judah? And what I mean by that is this. Joseph had 11 brothers. We don't hear anything about all the rest of them. It's solely Judah. All of a sudden he takes center stage. All of a sudden the spotlight leaves Joseph and we go to Judah. So that's the question we have to ask. Why, why do we need to know these details of Judah's life? I'm sure if you would have followed Simeon or Reuben, you would have gotten some crazy details as well. We already know those guys were, to say the least, some interesting, savory characters. But for some reason, it turns to Judah. Now, what we saw last week is Joseph is certainly a type of Christ. You don't need a master of divinity to see that. The parallels are so clear. Um, he was persecuted. Jesus is persecuted. He's rejected by his people. Jesus is rejected by his people. God uses that very rejection to end up delivering his people. Can I get an amen? No problem there. 
God eventually uses him to save Israel's family from the coming uh, famine and impending distinction. But this is where it gets really interesting. Joseph is not the son, ultimately, through whom the deliverer, the royal Christ, would come. And now all of us would normally kind of gravitate towards, hey, Joseph's like a godly, really, as, as we go to read the story, we're going to say, man, what a righteous dude he was. But the interesting thing here is, now the, fo the focus is on Judah's line. So much so that we, we know the story, so I can't act, hold it over your head like you would never hear of it. Jesus is actually given the title in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, the lion of the tribe of who? Judah. That's the royal line. David comes through that. And then the Christ. So the Holy Spirit wants us to know the story, now this is important, of Judah's transformation by God's sovereign grace. From a violent, deceptive compromiser with the world to a humble, self-sacrificing servant leader. Because later on, when, we, when he comes back into the story, way later, we're going to see it's not the same Judah that it was back here. Something happened in this the time period of this chapter that we are going to learn a lot from. Now, there are a number of lessons from Genesis 38. And I will park every now and then and just kind of pause and, and tease them out a little bit because we, we just simply don't have time to exhaust it this morning. But what I want you to see is the main point has to do with this. Before we even get into the details, so you will keep this in the forefront of your minds. It has to do with the satanic attempt to prevent the continuation of the line of Christ. And how God uses even the evil deeds of men and women to fulfill his promise to crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman, the Christ. That's the main major point that we dare not miss as we go into. So this is what we're going to see. The sovereign unmerited favor of God is seen in the choosing of Judah to be the son of Israel through whom Christ would come. And it's going to become abundantly clear as we look at these three things. Now last week I told you I had three points and I only gave you two. And nobody even noticed. I didn't get any, hey, where's the third point? So this time I'm giving you three and you're going to get three. And the first one is the sinfulness of Judah. The second thing we'll look at is the shrewdness of Tamar, or Tamar, as David correctly pronounced. And then the third one, the sovereign grace of the Lord in all of it. So let's take a look at the first one. And this is by far the, the craziest one, the sinfulness of Judah. Now, as uh, David read in our text, we have verse 1 of chapter 38. And what happens is you have Judah leaving his family. Did you see that? To go to another town. He's hightailing it out of town after the, the sordid and sad events that occurred in 37. Now, we just got to real quickly say, how do we, how do we, where do we leave Jacob and his kids at the end of 37? You know where we leave them. It's a dad who's in inconsolable sorrow because he's been lied to by his sons, saying that his favorite son had been killed by wild animals. So you have Jacob holding that beautiful coat with blood all over it, thinking the whole while that his son is dead. 
And the text tells us he's inconsolable. He will not be comforted. And of course, Judah would know he was one of the prime movers in this sordid event because what did he do? He suggested to his brothers, let's sell him into slavery. Now, sure, it was nice, let's not kill him. Oh, you know, what do you want, some credit for that? Instead of killing him, let's sell him, make some money off him. So here's the point. Do you realize if he would have stayed with his brothers in his father's house, so to speak, his father's tents, every morning when he got up, he would be faced with the shame and the guilt of his sin. So what does Judah do? He does what we often do. Instead of facing guilt, instead of letting it bring us to the throne of grace, Judah does what? He runs away from it, tries to hide from it, tries to forget, get it as far out of his mind as he can. So the text tells us, at that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hirah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. Now this is what you need to see. It's super important. You got to see this act for what it is. Now you may remember, some of us who've been working through Genesis, you remember what Abraham said when he was to his servant when he was trying to find a, a, a wife for Isaac? Make sure you don't go to those Canaanites. Make sure you don't go to the, uh, those people of the other nations. You take them to my household so that he finds a wife within the covenant, covenant community. If there's none there, then you bring them back here to me. You promise me this. You remember that, right? And you remember in God's grace he found a wife from around their clan, so he married within the family of God, as it were. And then, if you also remember, when you have Jacob and Esau, what did Esau do? Esau went and took Midianite and Canaanite women to be his wives. And it says that it, it really, uh, really hurt um, Isaac and Rebekah. And they were vexed because he was unequally yoked. Well, unfortunately, here you have Judah. And what does he do? He mixes with the Canaanites. And it doesn't seem like he even has a qualm about it, does it? He met this woman. And notice, she's not even given a name. Did you see that? The daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. Now, here's a very important truth. I told you we're going to stop every once in a blue moon and just have a little pause. But I want you to notice something. When people are confronted by their sin and guilt, very often, when they turn away from God instead of to God, who else do they normally turn away from? The church. They walk away from the fellowship of the saints. And so a sign of all of a sudden cutting yourself off from all your believing friends and relatives, and not uh, assembling together for the worship of God with God's people, that is a very dire sign that you are spiritually sick. And it's that bad B word that we don't like to use called backsliding. And that's what we have here. We have Judah in this backslidden state, marrying a Canaanite woman, and unfortunately, it goes from bad to worse, doesn't it? Because what happens? He has three boys with her. 
And we know, we, we read in the text the interesting events that happened. Now, first of all, Judah got a wife for Ur, the firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, verse 7, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Second pause or park, because it really hit me. We don't know exactly what his wickedness entailed because the text doesn't tell us, but the text says whatever it was, it was so bad that God said, I'm not even waiting for judgment. I'm taking them right now. That's some serious stuff. Now, there was a time in our modern culture, this really hit me, where we were too quick to judge people. Um, we didn't try to understand maybe what their dysfunctional family background was before trying to figure out why they do the sinful things they do. We didn't try to figure out maybe they have mental illness, uh, maybe they have chemical imbalance, uh, maybe they have psychological issues, and we jumped to judgment. And that's wrong. We should ask why in, in love and in compassion and try to help folks. But now the pendulum has, spoke, uh, has moved, swung, the total opposite direction that we don't believe. Like, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, and even as just a Christian, I hear people say to me, why do you think he did that? <laughs> or why would this person do such a wicked? Because he's wicked. And then I get looks like, yeah, I know, but what's the real reason? No, that's the reason. Brothers and sisters, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And among us fallen sinners, let's be honest, some people are flat out evil and they mean ill will to the world. And they will not listen, they will not be satisfied until they do as much damage as they possibly can. I have met, unfortunately, too many of those people. And in God's sovereign mercy, sometimes he will wrestle with that person until they repent, and other times he will give them exactly the justice they deserve to the glory of his name. And in this case, God said, no more. So now we got a problem. Because we know how the story goes. Now we have this old Leverite, it's called the Leverite Law, Back in those days, even before the giving of the law through Moses, the law was, it was a traditional thing, that if you have a brother, um, you're the younger brother, the older brother is married and he dies, it is your duty to then have children with the widow so that the older brother who died, his name would remain. He would, he would get his inheritance through his children. Back in those days, it was very important. And then we know, I'm going to read the text when Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. Verse 9, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, so by the time, this wasn't a one-time deal. I mean, by the way, I want you to see this. This was his regular practice. It wasn't like he did this once. He spilled his seed on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his, for his brother. Look at verse 10. This is not good pattern here. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Wow. So it looks like Onan wasn't any better than his older brother. And he proved this by wickedly refusing to do his duty before the Lord. So in other words, the Lord, the Lord's will, the kingdom of God mattered, didn't matter at all. All he cared about was what was his. 
And we see Judah's life begins to take an even further downward spiral at this point. And in his fear and in his grief, instead of taking to heart, listen, what Judah should have done is he should have recognized this is all my fault. I walked away from God. I walked away from his people. I married a Canaanite woman. And now my children have been judged. It's time to clean house. Is that what he does? No. What he does now, what does he do? It's very interesting. You need to see this. He blames Tamar. He says, I ain't giving my third son to her because she was born under a bad sign. She's cursed. If I give Shelah to him, to her, then the same fate is going to happen to him. In other words, there's something wrong with Tamar. But we know in the text, it wasn't Tamar, was it? It was his kids. I wasn't going to stop here, but I, I am. You know those parents? Their kid is a holy terror. Can I get an amen? amen? And the teacher is trying to wrestle with him. The teacher finally sends a little note. You know, we're trying to work with Johnny, you know, but he did hit his, uh, his mates and he pulled the group. Not my Johnny. You ever meet those kids, those parents? Everybody else's kids must be wicked. My kid would never do that. We have Judah doing that here. It's, it's Tamar. Everybody else in the world is like, uh... Your kids are bad. So what does he do? He, he deceives her. He lies to her in an attempt to avoid giving his third son to her, Shelah, so that he, in his mind, he wouldn't meet the same fate as his other two, for his first two sons did. So he deceives her. Oh, listen, when the boy, he's, he's really young right now. When he gets older and he's old enough, then I'll give him to you. All right, everything's cool. I'll just wait. Well, now we're going to see the second point. That's, we began to see the wickedness of Judah. Unfortunately, this will unfold more, but it's under the main, a bigger heading of the shrewdness of Tamar. This is one peppy woman. This is one uh, um, we will not condone what she did. Obviously, the Bible everywhere else would not condone the particular action, but I'll tell you what, the Bible does put her in the genealogy of Jesus and does say this is one spitfire of a woman, and this is one shrewd woman who had to do what she had to do for her family. And you also want to wonder, maybe she even saw, knew about the promises and wanted to make sure that the line of Judah, we don't know. But we do know that she definitely took matters in her own hands here. We see a woman who is more than a match for Judah, a Judah who inherited a measure of his father Jacob's deceitfulness. So Judah was playing the whole deceitful game that Jacob used to play. And if you remember, just as Jacob was out outwitted by Laban. You remember that? His father-in-law? Well, now we got Judah being outwitted by his daughter-in-law. So what happens here? Over at this point in time, the story goes on, and Judah's wife dies. Again, no name. His wife, the Canaanite, dies. After the time of mourning is up, he decides he's going to go out into town with his Canaanite buddy, and you're going to shear his sheep, or where his where sheep are being sheared. And as he's out making his way to where the shearing is going on, Tamar hears about it, and she realizes, hey, he lied to me. His son's old enough, and he never did give him to me. 
So she veils herself. She uh, puts herself in Judah's path, comes up with this great plan. So she poses basically as a prostitute, a shrine prostitute, right in where he would have to pass. And she does prey on his weakness as a widower. And we know the whole story. I'm not going to tell the whole story over again, but we know what happens. He says, lie with me. And she says, what are you going to give me? And he says, well, I'll give you a nice young goat. Back then, that was a nice little prize. And she says, well, I don't see it here right now. How do I know you're going to give me a young goat? What are you going to give me to prove that you're going to give me the young goat? He says, well, here, you can have my signet, my signature, um, which, my seal, which would prove that, that it's his, and, and also um, his staff, which in those days it would be very identifiable as his. So in other words, all the commentators say, every single one of them, that would be equivalent to saying, here's my MasterCard. Here's my visa. You just gave your identity away. There's no way you're getting out of this. You know, here's my social security number. And she goes, oh. And the text says, as we know, they lie together and she becomes pregnant. But notice what she does right after she becomes pregnant. I think this is interesting. She takes off the prostitute garb, garbs and does what? Dresses back up as a widow. You see that? It's done. The job is over. This wasn't about sex. This wasn't about enjoying it. This wasn't about, this was about the promise being fulfilled of having that child. So after this, meanwhile, I want to just read it to, to summarize. Verse 20, meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adalamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. Yeah, he wanted that pledge back. I don't know about you. Give me back that credit card. But he didn't find her. ruh -roh. He asked the men who lived there, where's the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Aniah? Uh, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. Uh-oh. So we went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitutes here. Then Judah said, now listen, this is telling. Let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. What's Judah concerned about? how it looks before others. He's concerned about his reputation. So he's more, listen, this is important. He's more concerned about his image among the Canaanites than he is with the God who calls him to worship and serve and obey him by faith. My brothers and sisters, how often that is too true in the church. It's one thing when I see worldly people who aren't saved just trying to be like the world and keeping, wanting the world's applause and approval. It's another thing when I see the church, and even in myself, this desire to be approved, to be liked by worldly people, to be in the inn. Vance Havner puts it this way, most church members live so far below the standard, you'd have to backslide to be in fellowship. We are so subnormal that if we were to become normal, people would think we were abnormal. Now, I remember this. When I first got saved, I was on fire. And I remember the church did not know what to do with me. And I remember them saying, oh, you're zealous, you're this. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm just doing what the Bible says to do. 
But when the church has fallen into what the world does, normal looks abnormal. Following Jesus looks like fanaticism. Judah had completely fallen into the ways of the Canaanites. You couldn't tell him apart. He was going to a prostitute. What made him different? Very interesting, by the way, in the very next chapter, you have Joseph, Joseph, who was willing to go to prison rather than sleep with a woman outside of marriage. Just saying. Very next chapter. So oblivious is he to how far he's fallen away from grace and how reprehensible his behavior is, that when he hears that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant, what is his response? This is so rich. It's like the, it's like the highlight of the, the, of the passage. He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. And at first I thought, man, talk about being a hypocrite. But he wasn't even, it wasn't that he was a hypocrite. You know what he was? He was following that double standard. You know, we think it's a modern thing where men can do whatever they want, but as soon as a woman falls in this area, she's a bad word, which I won't say. But when guys do it, ah, boys will be boys. Well, we see way back here in the first book of the Bible, God's condemning that double standard. How in the world? You want her burned, well, then you should be burned too. That's, that's the thing. And not only that, think about it. Here's a guy who sells his own brother into slavery. Think about that. He's the one who put his daughter-in-law in a position that she had to be so desperate, she had to dress up like a prostitute in order to, do, to get him to do what he should have done to begin with. So Tamar gets her moment tomorrow. And she knows she has him in her grasp now. And I love this. As she's being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. Uh, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. You recognize these by any chance? <laughs> what a moment. He's busted. He's caught red-handed. But now this is where it gets very important in the story. How will Judah respond? You realize how many times have you found people, have you ever caught somebody doing something and they still deny it? Can I get a witness? They still try to up and down, give you all these excuses. Well, no, it wasn't really me. Somebody took my signet ring and I knew it was stolen. And, you, know, you could come up with a million things. But here's the interesting thing. And, it's really, and, and the other thing you could do, he could have said, yeah, you caught me red-handed and then thought in the back of his mind, I can't wait to get you back, you little snitch. But do we see that? No, we don't. This is what we see. Surprisingly, this is against his character so far. This is what he says. She is more righteous than I, or more in the right than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And look, what's the next part? He did not sleep with her again. This is huge. And I'll tell you why it's huge, and I don't want you to miss it. It displays the gracious miraculous, amazing grace of God at work in the heart of a wicked covenant breaker. So this gets us to the last thing I want to point out from the text, and really is, I mean, what's the main point here? What are we seeing here? What we're seeing and what we're supposed to be learning from the text as we look at these sordid events in chapter 38, 
with Judah and his family is that apart we see that apart from the grace and the mercy of God apart apart from God breaking into our lives and into history with his unmerited favor to change things we see what what an incredible mess we would make of our lives we see the downward spiral of sin and that would eventually lead to death even among the covenant people of God if it were not for the Lord on our side and that's the last thing I want to point out here is we see very clearly here the sovereign grace of the Lord even as we go on to finish up the text look at verse 27 when the time came for her to give birth there were twin boys in her womb as she was giving birth one of them put out his hand so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said this one came out first but when he drew back his hand his brother came out and she said so this is how you have broken out and he was named Perez then his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out and he was given the name Zerah now this is simply incredible think about this after all of this after Judah's horrible descent into living among pagans living like pagans endangering the line through whom Christ would come, through which Christ would come. The glorious, unmerited, amazing favor of God shines through this like a beacon. It cuts through the night and the darkness here. Perez is born. You know, it reminds us of what Isaiah would say later, and then we know of our Lord, to us a son is given. A child is born. And this is the one through whom King David and then whom King Jesus, the Christ, would come. Out of that, you know, you think about it, out of the line that was at risk of being broken, out of the family line that was almost completely submerged into darkness, comes a son. A son who would carry the royal line of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, these comments of S.D. de Graff are worth quoting in full. God's ways are wonderful, he writes. Judah was chosen simply because it was God's good pleasure. Not even the great sins in Judah's life managed to block his election. When God chooses us to be joined to the Lord Jesus Christ and inherit salvation, it's not because of our superiority, but because of God's good pleasure. Later on, the spirit of the Christ was manifested in Judah and his offspring as God brought Judah to the fore. In him and in his descendants was the light. Judah became Israel's hope, and Joseph receded into the background. Amen. God chooses, my brothers and sisters in Christ. He saves, he redeems, and he uses people like Judah and Tamar as the one who came from their line would one day say, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How wonderful that Judah and Tamar are in the line of Jesus, showing that it is by grace we are saved. And it's not of ourselves. It's not by works, so none of us could boast. And that's incredibly good news for you. And it's incredibly good news for me who sometimes fall into a way of life that looks more like the world around us than it does of the chosen, beloved 
people of God, who we really are in Christ and by his grace. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that this chapter is not some kind of diversion. It's not a break in the story, but this is an important part of your story of redemption and how you chose to work through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. And we thank you that merely out of your good pleasure and grace, you chose Judah and his line to be the line of Messiah Jesus. And, oh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts that same grace you worked in Judah's heart of faith and repentance, that more and more our lives would be conformed to the perfect, holy life of Jesus. Oh, Lord, forgive us of our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.